Welcome to the Mindful Mutiny Podcast. I'm Jeremy Van Wert, CEO, therapist, and transformational coach, helping you get unstuck from burnout and stagnation. On Mindful Mutiny, we thoughtfully rebel against everything that keeps you from achieving your highest potential. Please don't forget to subscribe to this podcast, leave a review, and make sure that you're supporting this podcast so that we can continue making excellent content for you. Today on Mindful Mutiny, what you're going to get is I have a guest that is so incredibly special. He has worked himself up in the entertainment industry, doing incredible interviews with people. You're going to learn about resilience. You're going to learn about not giving up. You're going to learn about overcoming all sorts of, of things that are in your way and roadblocks that are inside yourself and outside yourself. Brian Sebastian is the dynamic voice behind the famous podcast, movie reviews, and more. Please go check it out. With a passion for entertainment, Brian has become a seasoned host, producer, and dedicated his entire career to the world of movies, art, and culture. As the driving force behind movie reviews and more, Brian brings a wealth of experience, insightful interviews, and an infectious energy to his audience. Join us in welcoming Brian Sebastian to the Mindful Mutiny podcast. Brian, welcome to Mindful Mutiny. Hey, I'm glad to be here. So this has been fun. I've been waiting for this for years and years. You just didn't know. <laughs> Yeah, we met a really long time ago, and we're definitely going to kind of get to that. It was a, an interesting meeting that uh, sealed a couple of fates here, uh, but I, I'm so glad that you joined us. Your podcast is huge, and I, I would like to just get into your life and and explore how you got to where you are, but can you take a moment and talk about movie reviews and more, where it is, how to get it, and what you do there? Well, the first thing I would say, I always say this because, you know, instead of 10 seconds, you should always be able to tell everybody what you could do in 10 seconds because people have a seven second attention span. And that's definitely true. And you will notice that's not 10. It's not 15. It's seven. So I always say this. I'm Brian Sebastian. Movie reviews and more. We're one of the best TV ready outlets in the world with 20 million views and counting. When I say that, they hear either the best, maybe remember my name, if not Sebastian, and then 20 million views. So I always start off with that. And it's one of those things where how we got that way is by having our hand in everything, if that makes sense. And depending on who I'm talking to uh, and what state I may be in talking to that person, depending what the political aspects may be, because you never know, everything is always important and sure. you don't want to upset certain people. You know, I always say this, you start with certain people, and then you go from there. And it's one of those things where I have to always start in this way with the drum corps world, starting at age six, seven, eight in Connecticut, watching the world of drum and bugle corps, the New London Surfers, walking through, a, uh, if you can imagine this, Jeremy, walking through a cemetery at night, because that was a shortcut, to go see a drum corps, the, the surfers performing. It would have taken me another 20 minutes to go around and then they would finish at midnight. And then I would walk back through the cemetery slowly because you're still a kid and you're still like thinking, you're not <laughs> sure if you believe in ghosts or anything like that at that point, but you don't want, you don't want to see them. You're just like, I'm going through here very softly. I just saw a, a great core and I'm like, maybe one day I can be in that, not knowing how. And then definitely to my mom, 
my mom did three things. She put me in, she put me into the drum corps. She made me go to Europe. And uh, there was one other thing that she did. Oh, she moved it to, to East Lyme, Connecticut from one. What time are you talking about here? When is this that you're going back to here? This is the early 70s. Okay. So I have a pretty good memory. So it's one of those things where I'm thinking of things going back to literally like 1968, 67. And I can remember those things because in the world of drum and bugle corps, you're supposed to remember things. If someone says, play it like this, you're going to play it like that. And you remember and when you hear those old sound on records, as you know, you could still play those things like that. So it brings back memories. So that makes sense. And at that point, I think that's why I have a good memory because of where you started, people who left their impression on you and you take it to the new aspect of stuff. So this is in New London, Waterford, Connecticut at this point, a mixed neighborhood, a great neighborhood. We played every sport in there. We played wiffle ball, softball, football, street hockey. Um, my favorite baseball team was the Red Sox that came in because you either were going to be a Red Sox fan or a Yankees fan. So God forbid you couldn't be a Yankees fan. So we became a Red Sox fan. So at that point, you're talking Carl Yaskrimski, Jim Rice, uh, you know, you know, everybody like that. So I never played baseball because in summers I was marching in a drum corps. So when you come to things like that, you start to learn a lot of things. And then in the mid, you know, the late 70s, you know, I, I mean, yeah, I started working with the Coast Guard Academy. So my first job, I made $750 an hour when I think the minimum wage was $225, $230, somewhere around there. So also the Coast Guard Academy was where the surface rehearsed. So we had the best facility, indoor facility on the East Coast. Magnificent. And we had... Yeah, we had, we used the Coast Guard Academy. We used to go there every, on Sundays rehearsal. And then I ended up working there. So I imagine that. What's the chances of that happening? And as I'm thinking back to these things, what is the chances of that happening? Working at the Coast Guard, but also being able to go to the facilities and perform there. Now you can't get on a lot when it comes to things like that because the world has changed because of 911. But when you start putting those things together, you don't take things for granted. We were always told that people had to wait until they could go outside. Well, we didn't have to go outside because they had a great indoor track football field facility, which is huge. And so we could rehearse there all the time. And we were just, we were okay core. We weren't the best, but we always looked up to someone like the Vanguard or 27th Lancers on the East Coast or, or the Machachos or people like that. So at that point, you're looking at these things thinking, oh, I want to do this. And this is kind of where it goes to. I kind of knew where I was going to move to before I knew I was going to move there based on where drum corps were placed. I always thought I was going to end up in Madison, Wisconsin because of the scouts, or that I might end up in Denver only because at that year we went to Boulder, Colorado in 1977, and I loved it. But I thought about, no, I'm not going to stay in Colorado because of the winters. And then, you know, as I'm getting on a plane halfway, I didn't even land it. I went to Anaheim. I, I knew once I landed in California, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to live in California. This is in 1986, jumping ahead. So at these things, you start to project what you want to do, where you might want to do it, if that makes sense. And that's how we learned in the world of drum and bugle court. And then when you go to regular high school, people are like, well, we're going to go out and drink. I'm like, well, that doesn't sound like fun. As I'm in the parking lot listening to drum corps records, you know, and then we had a band that they were terrible. And the band director, his name was Fitzgerald. He didn't like people who were in drum corps. He absolutely was one of those band directors that hated it. And so... You know, mid, you know, at that point, this is, this is 1977. 
as you're starting to age, you're starting, you're starting to travel. You're starting to like, oh, I love this. I like traveling now because of drum corps, not because of a family. And I'm like, wow, I can go more places with, with my friends in a drum corps than I can with my family. So I became a lot more independent, if that makes sense. Not knowing that, but you start to develop your independence. So when you go back to school, you're like, oh, we went here and here and here and here. How did you do that? Well, with the New London Surface Drum and Bugle Corps, New London, Connecticut. Oh, how do I do this? Oh, well, rehearsal starts in two weeks because we started, we stopped, Jeremy, at Memorial Day, I mean, uh, Labor Day weekend. That's when East Coast finished, which is the same weekend that Senior Corps would finish. We started Memorial Day, which was always the first show of the year, which was the weekend of May 24, 26. We had the very first show that started off drum corps season. So you can see how my summers were built, if that makes sense. So as the season started to get shorter as time went on with drum corps, well, I kept that season. My season starts Memorial Day weekend. It ends the weekend that DCI ends. So when you got that mentality, you start to put everything in. And when you start to have a short window of how you start to do things, you start to get good at what you're doing, if that makes sense. So you're really into this whole world of marching drum and bugle, drum and bugle corps and everything. And you're um, traveling around and seeing these different groups. And you start to, I'm assuming, have... Uh, a, a real respect for the creation of art and people who are are dedicating their lives to doing the creation of uh, a, a large artistic thing. And I didn't ask you about your family. You, you, you was was drum corps a place that you kind of went because it was a family that you were able to have? Was it what what was what was the drum corps connection for you that really filled your heart back when you were uh, in Connecticut and and you know growing up? Well, at that time you had parades, so all drum corps marched in parades. That's how you made money. You might make a hundred dollars in a parade, and I remember them saying that. Now, $100 back then is, is $100, which is a lot for a drum corps. Well, not really when you think about it, as you would have known later on. But it's one of those things where we did a lot of drum corps, I mean, a lot of parades. So that's how we got a lot of our money to go on tour. So my uncles, you know, Dane Sebastian, um, uh, Dale Williams, which was interesting. We had two Dale Williams. We had a white Dale Williams and a black Dale Williams. No relation. <laughs> and they were both in the horn line. It was interesting. But it was one of those things where you, you got a chance to know certain people. You started to follow them. And as a kid, it's almost like if you played football and you were looking up to the football players who were ahead of you. Oh, I want to be sort of like this. Well, I didn't play football. I didn't play baseball because at the time frame of what we were doing, I was in and the band director, you know, he didn't like us. So I'm like, this band is terrible. I can make this band better. But he was not interested in doing stuff. So if someone's not interested in, in making something better and you came from something that was better than a band, it's not going to work, is it? So you start to see, you know, does he not know what's not working, that people don't like it? And when you have a first period in high school and that's your band period, you're not going to get it anything done. So all of a sudden, you know, the late 70s, my mom moves us to East Lyme, Connecticut. So we went from a mixed neighborhood of playing all the sports outside to an all-white neighborhood where no one played anything outside. So imagine that. That starts to play with you because all of a sudden, we're all the kids. 
Well, and then and then they're being driven to school. Where I came from, you didn't drive your kids to school. Everybody took a school bus or you walked to school. So that was interesting to me. So you, you, I'm starting to get two different worlds at that point. One mixed, one all white. However, the white school, East Lime, Connecticut, which I love till this day, that band director, Don McTavish, loved drum corps. He allowed me to do stuff that I shouldn't have been doing. He goes, Brian, we are, our school colors are marine and, uh, are marine and gold. Well, oh, Garfield Cadets, we can have those uniforms. Did you know we had the Garfield Cadets uniforms? Because the, the, that was the school colors. So he let me do that. We played uh, the 27th Lancers Drum Corps uh, a street beat and a New London Surface street beat. Bobby Craig, one of the best drummers out there. He played with the Polish Falcons. He marched Tom Brown, who ended up going to Santa Clara Vanguard. See the connection on things? Didn't know that until years later. So when you have those things like that, he was that, that black percussionist who ended up making the Polish Falcon cadets who missed finals in 1974 that good. So when you got someone who's that good and is a person of color who you never knew who was really that good, you start to see things in a different way. And when you start to travel, you start to see, oh, you've got the South where it's not so friendly to a person of color, but you're banned in that drum corps. And then when you go to an all-white school from a mixed school, the mixed school, the band director didn't care and hated drum corps. The all-white school, band director loved drum corps. So I could have been all screwed up if you see where I'm coming from. <laughs> but because of Don McTavish, and he would take the best kids in Connecticut to, to Europe five years in a row in the summers. So when I stopped marching, not due to me, it was just, you know, I, I stopped because I didn't see the core getting better. And all the good kids went to the 27th Lancers, the Madison Scouts, beyond Bridgman, uh, North Star. And at that point, you start to say, oh, okay, I'm going to go start to travel around on my own to see drum corps. Not playing baseball in the summer, not doing family stuff, but seeing the old family when they graduate. Because, you know, you know, when you graduate at 21, that's like, oh, I can't march anymore. What do I do? It's the end of the world for you sometimes. What do you do? Well, some people go to college. And at that point, I picked the places where I wanted to go to college. So I was going to Manchester Community College because I knew I was going to be a DJ. That's the only thing I knew. If I had stayed in Waterford, Connecticut, I for certain that I would have ended up in prison or jail because there was nothing to inspire me there. There was no music thing there. I didn't know how to read music. So that music director wasn't going to teach me. I don't even think he liked me because I marched in the drum corps. And that's all I did was I loved drumming music corps. That's, that was my inspiration, if that made sense. So when you have that inspiration, as you know, you take that with you to what you're doing. So you've got your own discipline. You travel more places than people had even thought about, even with their family. By 1980, when I graduated East Lime High School, I had been to 23 states in four countries at that point. Now, when you think back to that, without their family, so that puts you in a more kind of echelon of things. And then I started traveling on my own. I would drive up to Massachusetts in my rickety car to see the CYO show. And I would bring kids with me. I would go roller skating. That was the only thing I did outside the jump core activity. And then people started coming with me to go roller skating. So I started to bring them all. So I was a designated driver. I wasn't that person who drank on weekends. That was boring to me. Let's go get a keg and do what? sit around a tree and drink, that was not exciting to me. And I saw them getting drunk and stuff and like that. I'm like, that doesn't interest me. So when you have that, again, going back to that drum core of mine, I'm like, you know what you don't want to do? You know what you want to do. So I knew I wanted to be a disc jockey. 
This is when rap is coming in. 1979, okay. rappers Sock They started to have a sock hop. And I said, ooh, I'm buying albums. Because my in my, you know, when I was working, I spent all my money on buying albums. I would buy albums every week. So at that point, you're in the disco age, the late 80s, early, you know, I mean late 70s going late into 70s, the 80s. yeah. So at that point, that was my only out that I like to do. And I couldn't think of anything else. I wasn't going to be a basketball player. I thought of for a minute, but I'm like, nah, I don't think I'll do that. So for me, going to the all-white high school, East Lime, Connecticut, East Lime High, with the maroon and gold colors of Garfield Cadets, you know, he let me do the drum solo. So the drum solo is 1975 clocks that we played in 79 and 80. Our, our color guard, who we marched with, his name was Bobby and Jeff. They came from 27th Lancers, but they were with New London Surface. So the people I marched with ended up the last two years of my graduation at the all-white high school ended up being our instructors. Imagine that. So it was like being re reunited with friends. Gary Ripchinski, who played xylophone with us, who came from New, uh, Waterford, who graduated four years before, three years before I did, he came to be our instructor. So in 1980, when I graduated, we had the best band in Connecticut. We played everybody. From the Bridgman to the Vanguard to the Cadets to 27 Lancers, we played all of their stuff. And so at that point, I knew I was given freedom at the white school that I had that I didn't have at the mixed school. So see the difference? So when you start to get that as you're graduating and you don't go out and do drops and you don't drink, and all I did was buy records and, and go roller skating and listen to drum corps, I set my sights on what I wanted to do. So I wanted to do communications. And at that point, I'm getting into going into the high school. I mean, the college where I wanted to go. I knew I didn't want to take SATs. I did not take SATs. I didn't believe in it. I, it made absolutely no sense to me as a sophomore how you could study for an SAT and then hope to get into school. So you can see now, if you think about SATs, they're really not worth it. But at that point, oh, you got to take these to get into the college that you need to get into. Well, I'm like, who says? So my mind was thinking opposite in a different way. So I got into a community college class, um, Manchester Community College, going to Central Connecticut State. At that point, Central uh, Central State was, before it came, became a university, was known as the number one party school. Well, I wasn't going there to party. I was going there because they had a good communications class. And then I wanted to break into radio some kind of strange way, not knowing how, because no one told me. And then the interesting thing was I learned from the guidance counselor because I wasn't taking general mode classes like math and stuff like that. I'm like, I don't need math to be a DJ. And I didn't. They, but the, 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 the guidance counselor said, you need to take your general mode classes and don't worry about getting that job because I was going out to get a job at Merv Griffin Station in New Britain, Connecticut. He goes like this. Don't worry about it. You're not going to get that job. This is a guidance counselor telling me that. Do you know he was wrong? I ended up getting that job. So that's two things right there. That band director that didn't like drum corps, the one drum uh, band director that loved drum corps who inspired me just to have my freedom, if that made sense, to do what I wanted to do and going from there. So I started to develop my independence not knowing about that. So when you're not taking family trips, but you're taking trips with the drum corps, you're bonding with your members and friends like that, you learn to grow in a different way. So I, I, I chalk it up to like the animal kingdom, your birth, and then the mom lets you go out on your own and you do your thing. So when I started traveling on my own, that's how I kind of looked about that. 
I didn't have that family education. I was never told that I was loved, but I knew that I was liked in drum corps, if that makes sense. So as you develop these things, it's almost kind of like how I, how I grew up on my own, even though I really didn't grow up on my own, if that makes sense. Well, right. And and you you get then into doing the DJ thing. So where was your first DJ gig? A sock hop at high school <laughs> on a Friday night after All the right. football game. And you know what? I said, if I've got the DJ albums already and I was buying everything and I was being exposed, I already knew Motown and drum corps and stuff like that. And I knew some rock, like my brother, for whatever reason, loved Kiss. And I remember it being, he was a little kid. And for whatever reason, we would play the Kiss live at, live in Detroit all over on those big, huge stereos. So if he liked Kiss, I like Kiss. And then I started to get into a little bit more. So if I, when I'm on the lights, because I'm listening to Sticks, Kansas, Stones, Jeff Rotel, everybody liked that. And at that point, I started to mix it with Richard Pryor, with, yes, owner of A Lonely Heart, as Richard Pryor is talking, giving his comedy in the background. I said, if I can do this, I'm going to volunteer to be the DJ. And I did. And I said, how bad would it be if I'm not the DJ and I'm the black guy with all the albums in a white school? So I jumped at and had it and I had my own equipment. I brought my stuff in and it was OK. It wasn't what it needed to be, but it worked. And people liked the music that I was playing. And I said, if they like what I'm playing and I'm playing it for them because I know their taste, then it was working. So at that point, I kind of now that I'm thinking about it, I got a chance to understand, give the people what they want and they will come back for more if that makes sense. And do you decide at this point that with your communications and with the DJing and everything like that, that you wanted to get into doing like radio DJ work and, and interviews? Like how did this come to be that you decided I want to do it wasn't interviews yet. It was definitely music. All you want to do gotcha. is just play the music at that point. But you got to get in. Well, how do you get in? Well, at that point, I don't know if you remember this, Columbia School of Broadcasting. You ever hear that name before where you would pay like literally so. $1,400 to go make a tape and all that stuff. And supposedly you would get a job because you graduated from that. Well, I think it was a racket. I know it was a racket because someone was <laughs> making a lot of money. But that that day, and they would say guarantee you a job at a radio station in the, somewhere in the country. That's pretty good. Well, well, I don't know of anybody who did it. I knew people <laughs> who were paying, but I don't know of anybody who got that because you only had nine spots. You had morning, you had you know ten to two, you had two to six, six to ten, ten to midnight, that kind of thing. And then sometimes, depending where you were, if you didn't have someone playing the tapes overnight, and I did that at Merv Griffin Station. Okay. Um, that's not a lot of spots. And then you might have one or two people to fill in. So that's not a lot of people. And I think, you know, let's say there was 1,400 radio stations in the country. That's not a lot, you know, when you think about it. Or it's either 1,400 or 14,000, one or two. But, I mean, the number is still not a lot. So... In radio, you move up market to market. So in Connecticut, we were in market 39 or 36, one of the two. And at that point, I knew I didn't want to go to New York. I wasn't interested in going to New York. All I saw was problems with New York, whether it was, uh, you know, weather conditions or whatever. That's all I knew. But I did know I wanted to go cross country. And I, and like I said, the only reason I didn't settle in Denver was because of snow. I didn't want to have my friends come see me because they would see me and being trapped in Denver in the snow at the snowstorm. 
Yeah. I knew Wisconsin was having weird winters then, but I love being in the Midwest because me being close to Madison. I'm like, okay, do I want to go here? And I knew I did not want to go to Massachusetts because Massachusetts and Boston was having, mm, they were having problems when it came to, uh, they would have some race wars there because things were segregated okay. in South Boston and things like that. So I didn't want to go and live in Massachusetts and not be liked, whatever, but I did like the Lancers. I, but I, I knew if I went there, I was going to stay there. And I knew that. So as I was in Connecticut getting hired at the, at the in the Merv Griffin station, which was News Radio 14 in New Britain, Connecticut. And it was one of those things where I'm, I finally get to Central College through the back door, going to Manchester Community College, driving up every, every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And my car would break down Tuesday and Thursday. Just like a, a drum corps bus would break down, you learn then how to fix it on the off days and get it ready for the days you needed to go to school, which was an hour away. And then I would drive back. So I drive up and I drive back that same day, sort of like being in drum court. You go to the show, do the show. After that, you're going back home. So I worked on those things and I used to get into the rhythm. I'm like, oh, I might go to Central Connecticut because all my kids, well, my friends are going there. Or else you went to the University of Connecticut, but they called it Connecticut's high school because everybody wanted to go to UConn. I did not want to go there and I didn't see a good communications class there. So why would I want to go there in stores? You know, and, you know, they had their band was terrible. Their football team was terrible. The basketball team was terrible. Now, their basketball team is always great. Men's and women's now. But back then, they, they were terrible. So at that point, I'm like, OK, where do I want to live? Well, I've been to most of the states seeing drum corps. I wanted to be near a drum corps. So I just didn't know how to get there. So being in radio in the early 80s, um, I'm like, OK, how do I make a tape? Because you have to make a tape. Uh, you know, a two minute tape, just not the music, just showing your voice tech and if they like you or not. Now, I didn't sound black, so I knew I could get away with a lot of stuff. Hmm. But I also know when I'm working at more of Giffen's News Radio 14, I was interviewing people on a real, the real tape. So I got a chance to talk to Gail King at this point. No one knows who Gail King is now. You know, you know, as Oprah's best friend or being on CBS now. But then she was on Channel 7, ABC. Um, in Connecticut. And then I'm talking to our senators. I'm talking to everybody who's in a power position and I'm tape recording them and just learning to splice real the real tape. And I love that. So I was a desk assistant. And, but you know, you got paid terrible because you're just breaking in. You're just happy to be working at a radio station. So over at night, I had the weirdest position hours ever. It was from 10 to six in the morning. You can imagine that on a Saturday night. I, I did it for three years. I only missed three nights Oh my because I liked it so much, but it gave me a chance to listen to Larry King. Larry King was on mutual radio at that point. So before I met Larry, I, you know, I'm meeting all these people. I'm like, Oh, well, he's huge. I mean, how did, how did he start? Because there was no internet then and there's no way to find these people and you're working for Merv Griffin. So it's news radio. So I want to get into real radio. So no one breaks in through news radio Getting into top 40, that's not how it works. You're going into news and sports because you want to go into news and sports. I wanted to do the opposite. I went in backwards again, the back door, getting into radio, getting into top 40, KISS FM. KISS FM in Hartford, Connecticut. There's a bunch of KISSes around. Boston, New York, Los Angeles, and I think there's one or two more. But it's one of those things where once you get on that, everybody knows a KISS, and it's a huge station at that point. But you got to make a date. So to get people making the tapes, they might be getting 50 to 100 on-air air checks is what they call them a week. 
You might get that a day if you're in the major cities. How are you going to listen to all this stuff? The answer is you're not. If you, you know, if that voice doesn't capture you and win the first 10 seconds, you're not going to get heard by anybody. You know what I mean? So at that point, I ended going into volunteering a strange way through Jeremy Savage. And he worked from 5 to 10 in the morning. Five, wait, five, six, seven, eight, nine. No, he works from five to nine in the morning. Now, getting up, going for a morning drive, it's cold on the East Coast. And at that point, do you want to get up when it's snowing and it's freezing? Well, I did because I wanted to break in some kind of way. You know, you're young. You don't know any better. Of course. And at that point, drum corps mentality, I'm going to get in some kind of way. I'm going to get in. So a lot of it was visualization and determination in your mind. No one to help you because people don't understand what you want to do. So it's one of those things where, okay, thank goodness from the drum corps background and the determination and just get it done kind of work ethic. And I just know I'm going to get there no matter where I'm going to be, I'm going to get there. So that drive was always there for me to do those things, if that makes sense. Yeah, it, it, it does make sense. And, you, and you're and you you're in these early stages and you're doing whatever it takes. Get your By myself. Door, the volunteering. No yeah, yeah, you're, you're, you're you're spearheading this just by yourself. So, you know, as, as you move on, when do the doors start opening? You start making friends, you start making these relationships in the industry, these doors start opening. Talk about how that went. Well, you know, as you're, as you're asking me these things, flashback starts to come in. Well, in Connecticut, which is interesting, which is a great state to grow up, but still segregated in different ways. You know, now you're in the early 80s. You know, I'm talking 82, 83. And at that point, I was driving back and forth. I'm still at the Coast Guard Academy, but I'm driving furthest on a bad car. I had the Delta 88 Oldsmobile, a gas guzzler. And I could barely put $20 of gas in. That was like, I would rather oh, use that to buy an album. And, and it was a stink. Well, that too. And they sucked gas and it was always breaking down because it was my, 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 was my mom's old car. She got a Cadillac. I got her hand-me-down. I was just happy to have a car, you know? So it was one of those things where instead of going to Europe in 1980, um, I go, mom, can I get a car instead? I knew I wanted to go to Europe, but I also knew when I got back, I was going to have a car. So I'm like, I'll take the car instead of going to Europe. She goes, no, you're going to go to Europe instead. I want you to go experience that. So it was one of the best things I ever did. You know, that was the third thing that my mom did. First thing, putting me in a drum corps. Second thing, moving to East Lime, Connecticut to make a better, it's called moving on up to Jefferson's. We moved on up. And it was one of those things like that. Once you moved into the neighborhood, two of the neighbors moved out because the black family moved in. And at that point, you start to see things differently. You start to hear things. And then at that point, um, having the rickety car, but going to Europe instead. So again, knowing how to travel, I was like, wow. As kids were getting homesick, I was like, what are you homesick about? Enjoy it. You may never come to Europe again. You're, you're here by yourself. and like, oh, I want to go home. I'm like, go home? You're in Europe. Look at the castles. We went to 23 castles, Jeremy, in three right. and a half weeks. Imagine that. So when you're doing all these things, you're seeing things in a different way. I'm out there by myself. I don't, I'm not through a family by myself. So I learned a lot of things. If you know, if I don't do it, it's not going to get done. And then there's no one to help you to do it because people didn't understand. Well, you want to be a disc jockey? Yeah, I want to be on the end. I want to play music at a radio station. That doesn't make sense to people. It, it, it just doesn't. What's everybody doing these days? They're doing a podcast. They're doing it whether you hear it or not. There is no difference. You can play music. 
or you could talk. It's the same thing when you think about it, right? Well, it most certainly is. And I, I just love the democratization of the ability to produce something and see if it catches on and see if it goes somewhere, which is obviously what you have done. And so, you know, you're 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 in the early part of this and you're continuing to follow a path that isn't necessarily traditional going into a job that has, you know, you go and you get your college diploma and then you go get the job that that gives you uh, that sort of regular paycheck and everything like that, you're going in a really interesting route and you're going against the grain. You're going into- You gotta remember this too. Yeah. At this point, they're always saying, you gotta, you gotta graduate high school so you can go to college to get a good education to get the job that you want. Yeah. Now, I always knew this because when you took out those loans, I took out one loan. At, at that point, you had a $2,500. The government took $200 or $200 from tax. You had 23 Everybody went to go buy a new car or they went on a trip. I said, you're going to have to pay that back. Oh, you don't have to worry about that. We're going to have fun. We got free money. That's not free money. It's a loan. You got to pay it back. So I took $1,500 to pay off the bills on my car because my car kept breaking down. And then I needed to get an apartment. I didn't stay in dorms. I didn't want to stay in the dorms. I wanted to stay in an apartment. So an apartment at that point was $1,200, $1,200 to $1,500 for the year, if that makes sense. That was still a lot of money back there. And you had to pay it all at once. So the money that I had went towards that. And I'm just getting into college at that point, living off campus. And I didn't have, I didn't necessarily have a car because my car was breaking down. Mm -hmm. So, you know, what? so I put it all into the apartment. So when you're doing these things and I'm not, and I'm not working at the Coast Guard anymore. So that month, that lot of money that I was making is not there. Because you got to get a you got to get a job when you're in college some kind of way when you're off campus, you know, and that's not the easiest thing. So when I'm at the, the radio station there, well, anything that I had was whatever. So it's not like I was going out partying because I never really did any of that stuff. I didn't do that. When I had the free time, I was buying albums still and I was listening to drum corps music. And then I had, a, you know, kind of like my first girlfriend at that point, which was interesting. And then at that point, you know, oh. You got to start paying for things. You got to go out as two people. I'm used to going out by myself and just being <laughs> you know, like, oh, you may not have enough money at this point to do two things with two people. I'm like, oh, you got to think a different way. How do you do this? Do I buy? I can't be buying albums if she wants to go out and have a drink and she liked the drink. I'm like, oh, this is expensive. You start to learn a lot of things here and there. Because remember, I'm not going out to drink. I'm going out. You know, I'm in martial arts at that point. And I'm I'm still listening, buying drum corps albums when they come out. I'm going to drum corps shows. That's where my money went. Not to go out and get drunk like everybody else did. I, so I was never that guy, if that makes sense. So you start dating somebody here. Uh, and did this lead you to kind of a, a, a next stage in your life? or? Yeah, it took me, it told me, it, it taught me again, you know, about segregation and going to certain nightclubs, things that you weren't supposed to do because you, you know, and I never looked at it this way, the, the color of your skin, just because I was a dish jockey, they would let me, and I was good. They would let me go into the clubs and they were white clubs, but they weren't letting anybody else of color in. They would say, oh, you can't, you know, your shoes, you're not wearing the right shoes or it's a private club or it's a membership. I remember them saying those things. And then I just remember looking out there, I'm like, well, this yeah, it's just me, I understand, but you didn't really get the gist. You're just happy to get that job. I'm, I'm playing albums in a club. Um, 
but you know, it was just temporary because they may not have wanted you. They may have wanted the white disc jockey instead. So you're, okay. you're doing everything to stay in. So how do you stay in? It's that dedication, staying up, getting people on the dance floor. How many people are going to come that night to the club? You didn't control that stuff, but you could you could control them on the dance floor. And at the same time, if you did a sock off, you know, going back to high school, it was about keeping those kids on playing the music that they wanted to dance with. If you think about this, Led Zeppelin was the song that everybody danced to, Stairway to Heaven. Well, you know, that's seven to 12 minutes long. So, but they loved dancing to it. And for like four years, real, everybody loved the best song was Stairway to Heaven. No, it wasn't. There was other better songs out there. You know, they just didn't know. So I was playing other songs that they may not have heard of before. And I wasn't into James Taylor or um, uh, not Linda Rodstadt, but more uh, like Crosby, Still and Nash. I wasn't into them at that point. And Neil Young. Years later, I got into them. Once I met them and I got a chance to, to talk about that, I would get into there. And you go back and listen to the lyrics because as a disc jockey, you're listening to the beat at that point. Women always listen to the lyrics. And I thought that was interesting. And how did I know that? Because all these girls, when I finally get in, getting go getting, finally getting into Kiss FM, and I'm taking requests, I'm not on the air, but I'm taking requests and filling out what they want to hear. The girls would always say this, oh, you sound so cute. What do you look like? And I never told them what I look like. I would always say, what do I sound like? Because I didn't sound black. And they would always say, oh, you sound like you have blonde hair and blue eyes. So at that point, you're not going to ruin their fantasy. <laughs> I'm not going to say, no, you're really talking to a black guy. No, I'm not going to say that. So that's when you learn to give the people what they want again. And for, for disc jockeys, if you remember, you never knew what they looked like when you were listening to them on the air. You're thinking that they're great looking guys. Well, they would always say, hey, we have a face for radio at that point, if you remember that slogan. So when you would see them, you're like, oh, he doesn't look like how he sounds. And there was very, very few women there. So that was a rarity. And then so as I'm in that first job, Merv Griffin, getting ready to get into Kiss FM, I was working at Dunkin' Donuts. So I was working three jobs at one point. Actually, oh my gosh, two and a half. I was working at um, the Merv Griffin station from 12 to 6. And then as soon as I left there, I would get to 7 o'clock, 7 to 11, or sometimes 7 to midnight at Dunkin' Donuts. And then sometimes I would work at UPS on um, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, loading and unloading trucks. Um, and that's how I made a lot of money to buy my real first car. This is getting into 1985 at that point. And at that point, you know, once you get that first car, you achieved your goal. But that's when you learn at that point, I just remember the guy say, oh, it's going to be $215 a month for your for your car payment. And I got a new car, Jimmy. It was a CRSX white car, only three miles on it. Imagine that, three miles. <laughs> and I said, wow. So at that point, you're like thinking, oh, I can afford this. But you start to ease up because you achieved your goal. That's when I learned that you can never ease up because when you ease up, things start to catch up to you at that point. You're starting to get your credit cards, whether it's a Sears or JP credit card at that point. All of a sudden, you're spinning because it's a credit card. And I just remember my mom saying, you remember, you got to pay that off every month. I'm like, yeah, I got money coming in. And I'm like thinking, yeah, I really don't have a lot of money coming in because <laughs> you don't want to hear it from your parents. You know what I mean? Of course. So, and, as, and as I'm still traveling, because remember, I'm still buying records. I'm still going to drum corps shows. And there was a lot of them at that point. I didn't want to miss them. I went to everyone that I could physically get to. 
that's how mm-hmm. I remember those days at that point. Yeah. Yeah. And and did you really feel like getting into KISS was the beginning of your big break? No, it wasn't that. It was definitely knowing the music that people were listening to it now, because look where KISS is now. Did I think I was going to meet Gene Simmons or Paul Stanley or anybody like that? No, no, you have, you're not thinking like that. You're just thinking, oh, getting into these things and, and then going, so going back to, you know, to East Lime High School, my first concert, I got kidnapped on my birthday. My friends kidnapped me and they say they thought this would be fun. So they kidnapped me, you know, Hartford Civic Center was an hour and 15 minutes away from East Lime. Um, with no traffic, you know, it's just, but it's hour, that's like a long way you're thinking, but re- these days it's hour is nothing, you know, but then you're like, that's a long ways away. You know, they kidnapped me and took me to my first concert. It's Ted Nugent. I'm like, okay, who's this guy on a stage swinging with a loincloth with a rope, the great white Buffalo and cat scratch fever, which I still like to this day. And I was like, I'm looking around. It's sold out. There's like 20,000 people there. And I'm the only black guy there. So now I'm used to this. But you started to you start to notice these things in a different way because no matter what, some places you couldn't go to, if you it's like if you walk down a dark alley, you still have to be careful. You're walking down a dark alley, no matter who you may be. You just know don't know who's there. Someone may jump you. So for me, being in that, you always had to be careful because remember, I'm always traveling by myself. And my friends treated me like I was white because I didn't act black. I, I didn't grow up that way. So I was always one of them. And everybody knew who I was in town because when you got a town of 7,000, I heard at that point, and you only had three black families or five that my friend told me about not too long ago. There was really five, Brian, not three. I'm like, I went by my, what my mom said. You know, you know, when you were that person of color, how many other people of color there are in that town, you know? So when you're learning these things, you have to still be careful because at that point you had the Ku Klux Klan, you had the American Nazis, uh, and they didn't like you, and they didn't like anybody who was Jewish. So you, those things stuck out, and you learned a lot of things when you went on tour, going back to Jump Court. So these things, as you're traveling around, as I'm doing these things, these things are always in the back of your mind. You still have to always be careful, but you're still going for your goals. Now, I'm not thinking ever of my, my skin color because that's that's not how I ever thought about it. It's just like, I'm going to get that great job that I know I can get that I will be the best at because of that drum corps mentality. Right, right. And you you keep pushing, you keep going forward. What, what are things like towards the late 80s and early 90s? Well, it was August of 1986. And at that point, I think, I think finals are in Wisconsin and Madison. And I just remember going back saying, this is, this is my last tour on the East Coast, in my mind. I'm, I'm not going to be at the radio station because I was at uh, Murph Giffen, uh, WPLP in New Britain, Connecticut, for three years at that point. And at that point, okay, it's time to move on. I'm not getting a raise. When you get a 25-cent raise and you're not making a lot, you can't survive off of that. And I just remember telling me, Brian, hey, Brian, you're in this market. You only move up by market to market. So I got to get to a bigger market. How do I do that? Well, you got to make an air check. Okay. How do you do an air check? Well, when I was overnights at Merv Griffin, I started to make air checks because on the hour, I would say, hey, this is Brian Sebastian. You're listening to WPOP and the time is whatever. So I could take that little bit of that because I was actually on the air at that, Pat, and make something into that. 
And then I would, there was other things I could just think. So I had plenty of time to do that because on the news feed and Saturday nights, there wasn't really any news unless, you know, uh, something was happening in Europe or something like that. No one, no one worked those hours from 10 p.m. to 6 a.m. in the morning. But I liked it because it gave me a time to actually put together a tape. If I hadn't worked that, there's no way I could have made a tape. You couldn't make it during the day. You don't make an air check when you're working at the station. Because if you do, they know you're getting ready to leave and they're going to get rid of you because there's other people wanting to come in. And so when you're seeing these things like that, you're like, oh, this is how you do it. And then you just start to figure it out. Again, no one helping you, you figure it out. And and you you're you're st you're still going here, and you're, uh, you know, kind of going along with the time. Are you moved? Did you move to the West Coast? Not yet, but I knew in nineteen August of nineteen eighty six, after that drum corps show, I knew it was time to move. I knew it was time to leave Connecticut. Now, that didn't give me a lot of time because when I leave, it's January of nineteen eighty seven. It's January. It's January. 67. It's January 18th of 1987 that I'm on a plane at Bradley International Airport in, I think it's like, well, Bradley's in Hartford, but I, I left out of Rhode Island because I couldn't get out because it was a snowstorm. And I'm, I'm flying one way to California. All I know is I'm going to Westward, where UCLA was, because one of my friends who I drum with, I call him Captain Koss because his, his dad was a captain at the Coast Guard Academy, is Dave Koss, and he's there. And so, Dave, can I stay with you for a week? And then, because my goal was I was going to get to California one way. I took $125 and changed with me. I got rid of everything. And then I'm going to work my way up to Walnut Creek. I wanted to be close to Vanguard. That's all I knew. I didn't know anybody up there, nothing. I didn't know where I was going to go. Had never been there before. But some kind of way I was going to get there. Well, the universe, fate, God had different stories. I never ended up going to Northern California. I stayed in Los Angeles because at that point, it's Power 106, which is a new station in Los Angeles, starting to beat Kiss FM, Rick D's in Los Angeles. Now, right. Los Angeles is market number two. And I'm like, oh, I can get over there. They're playing some good music. And these, these disc jockeys, I can tell Mucho Morales. Well, Mucho Morales, I know he's not white. And, you know, Brenda Ross, I had no idea if she was black until I walked in there. She fooled even me. She was good. And then you had Jay Thomas in the morning, Power Mouth Patty, and then someone else. And Jay goes on to be on um, a CBS show uh, with a bunch of people. He was he was good, really, really nice guy. So, And then I got a chance to find my way over there in promotions and PR. And that's how I did it, through the back door. And I would always say, once you're in there, once you're in, you can start talking to people. Well, the, the program director didn't take me seriously because I didn't come in as a DJ. I came in as promotions through marketing. So we'd go out, hand out flyers. I would drive the Power 106 van. And at that same time, I start getting a job. Imagine this. I'm on the air taking phone calls like I was doing at Kiss FM in Connecticut for my friend Brenda Ross, who ended up being a very, very nice woman. When I walked in there, I had no idea if she was black because she didn't sound like it. Just blew me away. I'm like, wow, she's just like me. She fooled me. <laughs> and I'm not used to being fooled. And so as I'm taking information, this guy um, called, his last name was Williams. And he called some, me from Tower Video. Now, this is starting the boom of video stores, VHS tapes at that point. People starting to get 
those their VCR machines starting to go into video stores. Now, Tower Video in Los Angeles, you got Tower Records across the street. You got Tower Classic and you got Tower Video. Well, Tower Video is open from 10 to, to midnight. Everybody, every celebrity that you can think of would go to Tower Video to rent their stuff. That's where I started meeting celebrities. So he called me, and what's the chances of getting through a request line? You remember ever calling request line trying to get I to do, the DJ? I do, I do. Did you ever get to the DJ? No. <laughs> so imagine this, Los Angeles, market number two, all the people calling on request lines, he gets through to me. Hey, hey, Brian. I'm like, how did he know it was me? He goes, are you on the air right now? I'm like, no, I'm not on the air right now. I was like playing it off. No, I'm not on the air right now. I'm just taking requests right now. How did you get through here? No one could get through on a request line. He goes, hey, you fill out an application at Tower Video. I want you to come in. You want to work? I'm like, yeah, because I didn't know anything about the world of video. It's the world of video. VCR rentals till this day that start me off learning about the world of entertainment. When I see... Billy Idol, William Broad, his real name. I signed him up. This is in 1987, Tower Video. This is only, you know, the end of February, March of 1987, where I'm in UCLA. Remember, I didn't plan to stay in Los Angeles. I wanted to go to Walnut Creek up in Northern California. At that point, I'm in Los Angeles at that point. So I'm in Westwood taking the bus because I didn't have a car. So when people talk about being homeless and having a car, and I'm like, yeah, at least you had a car. I didn't have a car. I was paying for an apartment, two bedroom with an attorney who I don't remember his name, but he was very nice. I just remember we're paying $600, no, $700 each for that apartment. Now he's an attorney, he can afford it. But when I'm having three jobs and I'm not there and I'm like, oh my God, you're paying just to stay at a place, lay your head in the rent. That's what I literally was doing. But I was, you know, and then you find out that Los Angeles is so spread. So I'd be taking a bus and it might take you two and a half hours to get from one place to another on Santa Monica Boulevard or, you know, or Sunset Boulevard because you're going distances at that point. And then I'm noticing in UCLA that every college kid has got a BMW. I was like, how do they afford all these BMWs? Well, I didn't know that they all had money and they, their family sent them there to go to school with a new car. I didn't know these things. And I'm like thinking... Man, I, I could have never afforded this. This is not how I went to college. So you, you start to see things and you start to experience what you're going through and then still going at it. So I ended up getting into Power 106 and I'm working at, um, at Tower Video. And then I'm working at 7-Eleven. So again, three jobs there. So at that point, I have that work ethic going in. And this is early 1987. Good so heavens. all I knew was that work mentality. And I go, oh, by the time you get to June, I'm still there. I'm meeting Danny DeVito and, and Ron Jeremy and Steven Seagal, William Broad, Wolfman Jack, all these people coming into there. And then if you go to Tower Records, where every rock and roller is going there, because only a block away is the Whiskey, uh, uh, what is it, um, the Roxy, the Rainbow, all of that stuff where all the rockers are. So everybody from Gene Simmons, Vince Neil, Tommy Lee, all everybody from Motley Crue is going in there. And don't you know this? Guns and Roses, Roses, Axel and um, Slash, they worked at Tower Video. They were managers and assistant managers only a year and a half prior to that. Think about that. And this is when Guns and Roses takes off. Yeah. 1987. So they were coming into the store all the time. So everybody who came in 
became friends in a different way. So all of a sudden, I'm starting to meet celebrities in the video side. I'm meeting the musical artists on the R&B side because we're playing Cameo. We're playing Jody Watley, Jermaine Stewart. We're playing Prince Michael Jackson, and I'm meeting them in the stores. So at all this point, I'm in the mecca stuff. I'm like, oh, I don't need to go to I don't need to go to Northern California now. I like what I'm doing now. It's interesting. And at that point, you're seeing everybody with the cars jumping up and down, going down Sunset, Hollywood Boulevard. Everything is there. So you're getting, you know, it was like a shock because I didn't know any about any of that stuff. It's very interesting. But at that point, you start to become friends. Hey, hey, Brian, will you save this? Will you save me these new releases for me? And I'll come and pick them up or I'll have my assistant come and pick them up. And think about this. Remember Ginger? from um, Gilligan's and Dion, she right. came in, uh, Louise, whatever her name is, not the nicest person. And, and, and the reason I found out why she wasn't so nice is because she was typecast. Well, I didn't know what typecast was at that point. She was typecast as Ginger, so she hated it. That's why she never went back for the reunion shows or anything like that. So she was miserable. And when she wasn't working as an actress, she was selling real estate. So when she would come in, she wasn't the nicest woman. And I didn't get it until that point. And then also, Adult performers were coming in. So you start to see people because we were we were renting out adult videos, which I had never seen before. And then all of a sudden, who would have known a couple of years later, I would be end up on the adult side. A lot of those friends on those tapes became my friends. Who knew? It's very interesting. So I'm thrown into the mix of something that I could have never have foreseen coming. At the same time, I still love drum corps. I'm like, oh, it's getting to June. Oh, they have a show here. How can I get down to Riverside? How can I get down to Anaheim? How do I get down there? Because I didn't have a car. So I forgot how I got down there, as a matter of fact. But I made my way down there to see the show. And I made my way back up there just to see my favorite chorus. I'm like, this is fun. This is the reason why I moved to California. And then everything, you start to put everything together. 87 going on. You're, it's interesting, isn't it? It really is. I'm just like envisioning what Tower Records used to be because it was the place to go to just experience new music. Now it's so easy. You have it on your phone. You can try it out. But you, it was like buying an album was a commitment. And you, you know, it was a lot of money to buy an album. And sometimes you didn't quite know what was on the album, but you bought it because somebody recommended it or or something. But you're getting there, you're there, and you're meeting all of these extraordinary human beings. And you're making relationships with them. Are you going to parties where these people are? Are you getting to know now, more of them? No, I wasn't going to parties because I I was working three jobs. Mm. Um, I, was, I, was, uh, I was an intern at... Power 106, even mm -hmm. though so, some people thought I was on the air, I wasn't. I was in the marketing department, so promotion. So we were doing powerhouse parties. So we would do a powerhouse party at um, at Capitol Records. On the outside, we would do it at um, at the Palace. They call it the Palace. Now they call it like Bar One, something stupid. But this is where Sammy Davis Jr., Frank Sinatra, the Beatles, Rolling Stones would perform. It's still there. So we had a powerhouse party there. So we would have like Cameo and um, um, you're talking about a different type of music starting coming. It's not house music. It's uh, it's the music that I still play today. Stevie B, I'll be sure. Um, it's early, but Boys to Men and those people are starting to come in like two, three years later. The boy bands, the black boy bands, and then you get into the mm -hmm. white boy bands at that point. But at that point, think of this. This is when Sean Penn was dating Madonna. 
Right. But that was yeah. hot at that point. 19, I mean, I just remember 1991 at that point, I'm skipping ahead a little bit and going back, is I end up on the wave. Remember easy listening music? This is the way the wave debuted it. It started in San Francisco first. I forgot what it was called up there. I, I don't think it was Coast up there, but it was something easy. It made its way down to Los Angeles, and Los Angeles got credit, even though it started up north, and then it spread cross country. Well, from Power 106, they paid me $15 an hour not to talk. So they had disc jockeys who were unhappy making a lot of money because they weren't able to talk. I was happy to take the money and not talk. We were just running a board. I was happy with that because you weren't supposed to be at two radio stations ever. Now, remember, I've always been at two radio stations. Remember Merv Griffin, News Radio 14, which they didn't count as a radio station because it was all news and sports, and then Kiss FM? Well, now I'm at Power 106, but I'm at Easy Listening, which is only down the street. However, you're not talking. So they didn't know I was that both. I was looking for any way to still get in. That was the whole thing. So if I can get in, always going through the back door, over the through the chimney, underneath the fence, through the roof, through the wall, kind of get in to, to get to what I need to do, if that makes sense. And at that point, I get that job doing that. And then house music starts to come in. I hated it. And it was the same time, I just remember, La Ista Bonita comes in, Madonna. And I'm like, oh, I see the music changing. So at that point for four years, I didn't listen to music because I had been listening to music since earlier on. And I didn't like the way it was going. But I didn't know there was different types of house. Now that I know my friend who started Chicago House Music, now who would have seen that one coming? Um, and then they had European House Music. It's almost like when punk came in. People didn't understand it. And people were walking around with spiky hair and stuff like that. And I got to go back to Connecticut on this. So this is 1984. When I hear Rock Lobster by the B-52s, and I see people with the spiky hair coming in, and all of a sudden they're all jumping up and down. I'm like, I like the song, but what are they doing? I didn't, I didn't know because you didn't see it. It's almost like if you were white and you went into a, dis a discotheque and you're listening to that straight beat of disco and you're a rock and roller and you're not used to it, what is this? This is not for me. It's almost like the Bob Seger song, old time rock and roll. Don't take me to a disco. <laughs> it's like that. So I, I, I got it. And then so you're starting to meet everybody at that point because everybody's wearing black. Everybody is thin. Everybody's got the torn jeans, but they got a lot of money. They're riding around all these cars. They got all these hot girls and you're seeing all these adult performers. You're seeing all these celebrities. That's not normal. But they all met at Tower Video. All of them. It was very interesting. So when you had a prince come in, you had Michael Jackson coming in disguise with the beard and everything like that. People just left them alone. We all knew it was Michael, but he loved coming in because nobody bothered him. He wanted to watch movies, too. He would come in with the little kid. Uh, I forgot the little kid's name. And then the little white kid, Ryan White. Remember him who died of, of AIDS? Him. He would come mm -hmm. in with all of them at one point. Okay. It was very interesting. So when you're starting to meet all these people, you're like, you weren't supposed to ask them for anything. They talk to you. You give them what they want. When they owed money, you make a deal with them because they, they were always touring or making a movie. They couldn't get it in unless their assistant came in and dropped them the, the tape at that point. And then you have access to their credit cards, too. So you're signing them up in credit cards. They just wanted to get in and out, get the tapes that they wanted. And then they became friends with you at that one. So that's when I started making friends with celebrities. And I thought that was cool because who would have known at that point? You've got a chance to actually meet and be around Michael Jackson. Everybody. Everybody. 
<laughs> and, I, and I was driving a Power 106 van. So I would drive the van, whether I was supposed to have it or not, and I would park it right in front of Tower, right in front of Tower Video, right there. They had a little drive-in thing, and they had a ticket master there. So everybody would come up and buy all their tickets too. Everything was there. It's the hub. Of, it was the hub of everything. And so what what makes you kind of evolve to the next stage in your career? What what pushes you to the next uh, space? It's home video. Home video, when I leave Tower Video and I start working for Extravaganza Video in 1991, I leave Power 106 at that point and I'm leaving the way because, you know, the wave was making changes. They had easy listening music called The Wave. That's what they call it. That was their tagline. And then they would say, the time is beep, whatever clock, computer. It was never a human voice. It was computerized. And that they only did it on, on the top of every hour. That was it. And you're seeing things change. You're seeing the new music come in. You're seeing, you know, things starting to come in at that point. Um, and then I'm starting to see the movies at that point. I'm starting to break away from music into movies at that point. Because... In Tower Video, you could play everything. You could play adult films after midnight because we might be there until like 1.30 at night, just cleaning up, putting everything in, putting the new releases out for the next, or, you know, every Wednesday or Friday when they were coming out because people, they would go really, really quickly. However, when you start to go, Blockbusters are not here yet. So when you start to go into, you had Music Pluses, you had the warehouses, you had Videotech, Videots, and a couple other things. So they were all in competition. So the busiest place was in Brentwood, Westward. At that point, I'm still living in Westward, still going back and forth. It might take me an hour and a half on bus, or sometimes two, based on traffic to get there. And I'm reading USA Today. So I'm reading all the things. I'm starting to see movies come out. And Westward, there's 16 theaters. Um, I don't have a TV, nor was I there to watch TV. So I'm not watching all the TV shows until later on, years later, almost a decade later. I'm catching up on all stuff when they're coming on VHS tapes. At that point, I knew I better watch everything on tapes because people would say, what's this movie like? Oh, it's pretty good. We would have, we would watch it in the store. But watching in a store and watching at home aren't the same thing. There's a lot of distractions and stuff like that. And as I'm thinking back about that, oh, you get good at watching stuff, running your register, checking people out because you might have to wait for people to come check out stuff. In the middle, you're watching the latest movie there because they're going to ask you, how's this movie? Well, you got it. We had a whole list of the things to watch. One person would pick this, one person might pick a music video. Because at that point, remember, music videos are hot at that point. So we're watching the latest music videos. Hey, can you play my music video? If one of the rockers came in and they wanted to see it, because we might get it before they get it. And that was kind of cool. So at that point, you're watching movies. And I'm like, oh, there's so many movies coming out. How are you supposed to watch all this stuff? And a lot of them, they were rock and rollers. They weren't really interested in the movies. They were more interested in the music. And only one or two people, his name was Mike Williams, matter of fact, now that I think about it, the guy that hired me for Tower Video. He was a movie watcher. He would take a bunch of movies home and actually watch them. But he was a good manager. And he let us do our thing because Tower Video, Tower Records, and Tower Classical Music were making a lot of money. And it was just perfect at that point. It was just a time that if you weren't there, you'll never really know what it was really like. Because I just remember Danny DeVito coming in and buying $1,500 of Laserdiscs. Remember them? He was mm -hmm. shooting Batman at that point. And I just remember, Danny, how do you watch all of this stuff? This is before I, we were going to be friends years later. Who knew? Who knew about interviews? I didn't know about any of that stuff. He goes, 
why did it, it takes them like four hours to do my makeup in the chairs. So as I'm watching it like this, the mirror is behind me. So I can see it in the reflection as I'm watching it this way. I go, well, that's pretty cool why they're doing your makeup. He goes, yeah, that's the only time I can watch something. Who knew? I never forgot that. Years later, we're talking maybe 15 years later. Who knew I'd be interviewing Danny DeVito when we become friends and I would know his publicist? Who knew? So at that point, all I know is that you better you better be watching everything because they're going to ask you. You better give them a good movie because they want to know what's good. They don't have time. To, no one wants to take, you've had a bad day, especially a woman who's had a bad day. She doesn't have a significant other. She broke up. Well, she might, wanna, want, might want to watch a romantic movie, but it's got to be good. Hey, you know, I'm, I'm not feeling too good. I had a bad day at work. She's a nine to fiver. Recommend her something good. So I got good at recommending good movies. Till this day, I still do that same thing. But it came from being in the world of home video. Yeah. You're 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 meeting all these people, and how long do you work at Tower? I was only there for a year and three months, not long. And then I go to, you know, um, I go to Extravaganza Video. I'll, I'll I'll never forget this. I was doing telemarketing also. Uh, my friend Stan Davis, if you if you ever heard of Abbott Elementary, which is on I think CBS, no, it's on CBS or ABC now. Okay. He plays the janitor. We became friends. And right before I leave UCLA, um, I was introduced to the world of Buddhism. And I forgot how I met Stan, but it was one of the things where it became where we've been friends ever since 1988. Still friends till this day. But he's on a hit show now. So I watched him. He always wanted to be a comedian. So he would always, we would always go to the uh, comic clubs and see him. So how I met, like, um, who's the guy with um, the who used to wear the long black jackets, the screamer, him? I forgot what his name was. He passed away, um, but he was always like, <laughs> he would always say like stuff like that. I would Sam Kennison. Sam Kennison, exactly. That's how I met Sam Kennison by hanging out with him. We would go to Malibu. Uh, Trancus was the place there. I mean, we'd meet him. Andrew Dice Clay is coming up. All these other people. That's how I met all the comedians through Stan Davis who's now on Abbott Elementary through that, because at that point he wanted to be a comedian. I had no idea that he wanted to be an actress because a few years later, I'm watching Primary Colors and he's sitting next to John Travolta in the scene. I had no idea. He goes, Brian, when, you know, at that point it's called NSA, Nation Social of American, NSA. And so they would give you like a little badge that's, you know, said who you were, what chapter, what district you were in. Well, we were in an all-black district except for two white guys. One was Russian. One was my other friend, uh, friend um, Rich Tisnek. However, Herbie Hancock, Tina Turner, Patrick Duffy, um, Sean Astin, they were all in the same entertainment district as practicing Buddhist members. Imagine that. I had access to these people. And I'm chanting with them on my knees. And Patrick Duffy is, is giving me, you know, at that point, Dallas is a hit. I never watched the show Dallas, but I knew he was Bobby Ewan's son or brother or whatever it was, you know. I never saw the movie, uh, the, the series, but I knew he was huge. But, you know, when you're standing in the middle of the street for 45 minutes and you're getting guidance on what you want to do at that point, being disc jockeying, being at the home video stores from Patrick Duffy, and it's just the two of us, you don't forget stuff like that. And then the next time you see him for an interview, 
It was a Pat. It was a, a Dallas reunion, and he comes in. I go, "Hey, Patrick." He goes, "Hey, Brian." And we sit and we hug. And people are wondering, "Well, how do you know him?" Well, how do you tell people you're practicing chanting Nam Yaho Ringe Kyo? You know, you can't tell everybody because they think you're in a cult at that point. So at that point, I'm practicing Buddhism, which I'm still practicing. And at that point, you're told if you chant for something, you can get anything in the world that you want because you're being in rhythm with the universal law, which is like sacred geometry, which is true. You know, everything's in Japanese, but, you know, the, you know, Nishun Dai Shonen would tell you, you're chanting for these things, everything could happen. And then it would give you the literature, which was great. And I had a choice. Either I was going to chant Buddhism or I was going to go into um, Scientology. Well, Scientology was going to cost me like a thousand dollars. So I said, That's I don't expensive. have a thousand dollars. Yeah. They wanted your money. Buddhism wasn't going to cost me anything. They just wanted, we just want you to be happy. I said, oh, right. and then. You know, if you chant for something, you, I can get whatever I want. I go, yeah. So I was specific. I knew what I wanted. I wanted to be on the radio. I wanted to do voiceovers because now it's coming into voiceovers, voiceovers and home video at that point. Didn't know about movie screenings. I didn't know about interviewing celebrities. That's, but that all starts to come in after I meet Stan and I'm selling cellular phones, what we all have today, Unidin phones. At that point, it was, uh, wasn't was AT&T. It was, it was Motorola and Nokia. Yeah. Well, all of those phones, I was good at selling on the phone for four hours. And they paid us, I think it was like $8.50 an hour for four hours of work, Monday through Friday. And then, so that was great because guess what? All the rockers did that before they made it. They were all doing telecommunications, which was interesting. Who would have known? Because they couldn't work, they couldn't fit into the nine to five world. Or they work at a video store or a music store or something like that. That's what they all did. And you always wondered where where are they going to get a job with spiky hair? Telecommunications. That's what they all did, and we were good at it because it was only four hours. What was it that Buddhism did for you inside? I imagine that there was growth for you, that it created some richness for you in life. What what was your growth like in this period? Oh, once you start getting stuff. And you start seeing and you start reading stuff and you start meeting people from Japan who went through Nagasaki or uh, uh, things like that. With it. Well, yeah, in Hiroshima, yeah. What, what they went through, you start to see what got them through there. Because I I didn't have faith. I wasn't religious. As growing up, going back to East Lyme, I mean, and before East Lyme in New London, Connecticut and Waterford, I just remember my father dropping us off at a Protestant church. I just remember running around church. No one taught me how to read the Bible. Uh, I just remember getting a Bible every May for three years straight, but no one said, hey, open this chapter. No one did that. And I that was always confusing to me. But I did know this. I did know when I was going to move to California, something spiritual was going to happen. And I didn't even know what that word was at that point. But I did know that. I just didn't know what it was. And you couldn't have told me I was going to be a practicing Buddhist. I didn't know that. In that chapter with all of those people in there. Because Guess who was beloved by everybody? No one had a bad word to say about her, Tina Turner, out of all people. Think about that. I believe and that. Perfect. You know, so when you're practicing with all these people and you're seeing this success, that makes you want to go for it even more. Because you're in rhythm with this scroll, the sacred scroll that's yours. And you're on your hands and knees and you have your fruit and you have your water and you're, you're writing down your goals. And it, it's almost like if you write down your goals, these things will happen as you start to cross off one off each list, which is what I do each day still.
I still get up and write a list of things I have to do the night before. Oh, okay, I call this person. I email this person. I do this. That's how I still get things done. But a lot of that is the toss-up between Buddhism and the world of Job and Bugacore. For me, they go together because you have to work in unison as stuff. When I had heard there's women, their sole job is to make sure that when President Indicator would come to the United States or travel anywhere around the world or meet when, you know, at that point, President Bush, that we, he would have great weather no matter where he went. Their sole job was to chant for sunshine no matter what country or state he was in. Think about that. And it was true. When you're putting your mind into chanting for something you want to achieve, whether it's good weather or getting through nothing but green lights, which is what I had, and someone challenged me one day, I think I told you about, it starts to work. You can't explain how it works because it's a mystical law. You just know it works. But if you start to figure it out, then you start to think too much about it. And that's where people get turned around because you still have to be consistent. It's called faith, practice, and study. When do you start doing the interviews? From home video, from extravaganza video in 1991-92. I'm in Brentwood, California, which is down the street from uh, Westwood, UCLA area. And I got so good at getting, getting people in the entertainment world, they would come in and buy a bunch of tapes. And they would rent a bunch of tapes. And I didn't know what they were doing. I'm like, oh, you, you, you know, you're watching and watch all these things? No, we know we're going to bring them back late, $3.25 late fee. No, we need to do some research on what we want to do. We're writing a script. Oh, have you seen these movies? I'm like, yeah, I've seen them all. This one's good. This one's good. This one's good. And I would tell them what it was all about. I go, oh, you should, you should start doing movie reviews. Movie reviews? Well, how do you do that? Oh, you gotta, you gotta, <laughs> you gotta get in touch with the MPAA. Well, they didn't tell you that you can't go to the MPAA. The MPAA was like going to see the Wizard of Oz. You're not allowed to go in because they're the rating system. For certain reasons, actually, once you get into it, they're the ones that rate all the movies till this day. Sort of like how the games have a rating system, or you know, Tipper Gore put from the rappers, NWA put a rating system on the albums at that point. Well, whose job was the rating? Well, you weren't supposed to know who it was. So you had to write a letter. You had to get, I was told when I called them, the Wizard of Oz, uh, they go, well, well, Mr. Sebastian, you have to get five directors and five producers. And she named off those names of Steven Spielberg and, and, uh, <laughs> and Francis Coppola. I'm like, how am I going to get them? I don't know them. They don't know me to write me a letter to be accredited to watch movies. What they didn't say is public access, because everybody's got a VHS machine, which is on Channel 3, which is public access at that point. So in Westwood in Santa Monica, down the street where, I'm, where I was doing that, oh, I'll just do a movie review show. Um, and so how do I do this? Oh, you got to find someone. Siskel and Ebert is big at this point. Can't, thumbs up, thumbs down. I'm like, well, I can't do that because they already got that. And they're on Channel 7, which is Disney, as you start to figure these things out. So this one guy on the adult side comes in. His name was Freddie, Freddie Diamond. And he goes, you don't have any adult tapes in here. I'm like, yeah, I don't know how to order them from people. Well, I'm in a couple of these, and this is my girlfriend. She's in a bunch of them. You should order these tapes. Oh, and if you're good at watching movies, oh, you should get in contact with William Margot. I'm like, Bill Margot. He goes... Yeah, either he likes her or he doesn't like it. He's very opinionated, but he he reviews mainstream movies. And this is where I hear the word mainstream movies. You, at that point, you have mainstream movies and adult films. And 
at that point, I'm like, oh, so I've got to order adult films now. Okay, so I've got to find a salesperson so people can rent them. Because across the street, we had Odyssey Video, which is huge on adult videos and independent films. They made their living off of adult videos where I even I would go over and rent those adult videos to see who I can see. Uh, who? Hey, how do you get this one? Oh, here's so-and-so. He's a salesperson. Oh, yeah. And then I would call them because you could call them at that point. Think of Reed Hastings from Netflix today. He, that's where he came from. That's why Netflix started out the way they are. That's why they're still good at what they are, except they're in debt. But the thing is, he was in the world of home video, you know, image, imita you know, um, image entertainment at that point, which was they would have all of these um, independent films that they would produce and make and do things like that. If you think of Dirty Dancing, Dirty mm -hmm. Dancing was done on independent filmmaking budget at that point. They had to reach out to do that. It, uh, it was called Vestron. Uh, Vestron did independent tapes for the home video market. You get into home video. You start to meet these people. Every summer you had what was called VSDA, Video Software Dealers Association, or Video Software Dealers of America. Yeah, video. Yeah, it was that. And what happened, they would bring out the stars. They would bring out the rock and rollers in Vegas for two and a half, three days. They would bring out the wrestlers. They would bring out Jane Ponder, Kathy Smith, Denise Austin, Tammy Lee Webb from the world of the fitness. Remember the fitness craze? This is where it starts. They would bring out the martial artists. This is where I met Scarlett Johansson jo jo for the, and Natalie Portman, uh, which when everyone was in the horse whisper, the Robert Redford film. And then, so I'm starting to interview them. I met Willie Nelson there for tapes he had. And I have these old things. Chris Tucker, when he was first starting out, I met there. So at this point, I'm like, I'm meeting these celebrities. I saw some of them at Tower Video. Oh, now I get a chance. Oh, if you're big enough, you can have them on the show because they're in movies. Oh, how do you do that? Well, you got to get on a list, going back to the MPAA. Once you're accredited from that, you get on the list. The studios start to reach out. The publishers start to reach out. Hey, we got a movie coming out. Uh, do you want to talk to them? Uh, sure. Come over to... Um, you know, the hotel on Sunset. That's where I met Jackie Joyner Kersley. At that point, she's an, she's an Olympian winner. I got a chance to do, because she put out a home videotape on her running track and exercising. I got a chance to do a one-on-one -on -one with her. I brought over a little camera and everything like this. I didn't know what the hell I was doing, but I got a chance to meet her one-on-one. -on -one, and then she goes, oh, where's this going to go? Um, <laughs> you don't, you didn't know. It's going to be on my show. What kind of show? Oh, it's a public access show. Once they heard that, they go, oh. But, you know, the fact that I guess I was so passionate and I was I had so much energy from practicing Buddhism and from the world of drum corps that they loved the passion, if that made sense. I was just happy, just like I still am to this day, to interview people because that's where it started. And at that point, you start to end up on lists. And then the studios and publicists start to call you. And... Then you start to do a lot of the interviews where the Four Seasons and Beverly Hills. Once you start going there, you know you've made it because that's where almost all the interviews are done in Los Angeles. And that's how that started out. So, Brian, up to this point, you are just starting to build and you're just a guy with an idea, a guy who naturally can speak with people, a guy who goes, if I'm not going to get in the door this way, then I'm going to walk in the back door and I'm going to make it happen. So... Overall, at this point, as you're moving into working your way up in a scene in Los Angeles and everything like that, what are the big takeaways for you 
in your slowly building success on a solid platform? Well, the one thing I always say is if, if someone ever asks me, what's the one word that's most important to you? I would say being consistent, because as long as you're consistent and for me, being consistent means, you know, tonight's live show will be show number 75 live in a row. You know, season four, episode one starts tonight for us. That's important to us because it's not easy finding that outlet. It's not easy finding the right outlets. It's like finding the right influencer these days, not like in 2012 when every, you know, when there was just a few influencers. Now everybody thinks they're an influencer, whether you have 12,000 followers or whatever, which is nonsense, or even if you had a million and you fell down to 942,000. You know, there's different ways to do stuff. Some people, more people have health problems now. Um, I don't have that. I don't get headaches. I don't drink coffee. I just get up and start doing stuff. I'm thankful. I'm show gratitude. I know what it's like to be homeless. I know what it's like to see my other friends. I don't have allergies. You know, I'm not really black. I'm more Indian uh, and white. You know, I'm not married, don't have any kids. Uh, you know, I'm 63, you know, so... I also know what's coming on the pipeline when it comes to climate and with our dream weaver arts and all this stuff. And I'm going to let you know, this will be a part two that you do in the future. I'm just letting you know. So that's a good thing. But, you know, coming through all of that stuff, I knew there was the, the movie reviews more when I created it in October of 1993. I always knew the more part was going to be more important than the movie reviews. But I didn't know what that was because that's in the early 90s. How would you know? I didn't have anybody to tell me. And then, you know, when we have chance, because I know we're running out of time, we'll talk about my shaman who helped guide me on the things because she's, we all have an influence. She's the one that put me on that track and said, you're going to end up doing this because I had no idea. I didn't know I was going to interview celebrities when I moved to California. Remember, I moved, I wanted to be closer to Santa Clara. I was going to move to Northern California. That didn't happen, did it? No, I stayed in Los Angeles and went a whole different way. So imagine me doing what I'm doing and wanting to help that drum corps, wanting to help those individuals, that company. Now, they can't see what I'm doing. They have no idea what I'm doing, and it doesn't even make sense to them what I'm doing. You're doing what? You're talking to who? How do you do this? Where can we see it? Well, public access was just locally. It wasn't nationwide. It wasn't syndicated. It depended where you were. So remember VHS tapes? I had to send VHS tapes to those people so they could see the show. And the quality was good. It was only half an hour. I did the best that I could at that point, and that was what it was. Well, thank you so much for bringing your message and your ideas and your story here. We're going to do a part two where you talk more about up to the point where you are right now. I love your tenacity. I love your relationship making. I love your ability to see possibilities, even though gatekeepers originally kept the gates shut on outsiders. You made relationships. You were kind to people. You followed up with people. And you had a deeply seated belief that when you put your mindset truly into something and you make Make it so that it's going to manifest in your life, which, you know, is, is something that can be incredibly powerful in life. So, Brian, thank you so much for bringing your story here. We're going to follow back up very soon and do a part two. And I really enjoyed hearing your story here. Thank you for this, because this is great. I like this.
Well, thank you to everybody for listening. This is Jeremy Van Wert from Mindful Mutiny. Now go be something great. <laughs>